Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now, they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities in the fifth annual Alex Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. This week's spring meetings of the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank will be virtual, of course. They come at a tricky time. As COVID-stricken governments turn to their lender of last resort, how much is in the kitty? And will it be enough? And, for the most part, Indonesia, the world's most populous Muslim nation, practices a fairly moderate version of the faith. But on social media, you'll find hints of a more conservative branch, convincing young lovers to ditch dating and skip straight to marriage. First up, though. Kosovo is in a divided and unstable corner of Europe. It's a fact underlined by the fate of Alban Kurti, who spent just 51 days as the country's prime minister. The coalition leader lost a confidence vote three weeks ago, after a dispute provoked by whether to declare a state of emergency because of COVID-19. Mr. Kurti was against the proposed measures. They would have given much greater powers to his long-standing rival, the Republic's president, Hashim Thaci. A major issue that has inflamed their enmity is the one that dominates Kosovar politics, the country's relationship with Serbia. Following the vote, the office of Mr. Kurti, who remains as caretaker prime minister, contacted the intelligence. Would we like to hear his side of the story? Okay, so first of all, Mr. Kurti, thank you very much for for making time for us. I have really just a, a few questions. Oh, thank you for the opportunity. And so we took up the offer, as well as speaking to Tim Judah, The Economist's Balkans correspondent. Albin Kurti is a very well-known figure in Kosovo ever since the late 90s. And he's been a protest politician really ever since then until he came to power after last October's elections. He was a vocal opponent of Serbia, who imprisoned him in the late 90s. Then he was an opponent of the UN, which ran Kosovo until its independence, or until it declared independence in 2008. He was an opponent of all Kosovo governments ever since. And he has been against the EU and periodically against the US. And many people in the former elite in Kosovo felt threatened by this. The deposing of Mr. Kurti as prime minister has been welcomed in Washington. President Donald Trump's administration has been trying to help resolve the impasse between Kosovo and Serbia that has persisted since the Balkan Wars of the 1990s. Serbia has never recognized Kosovo's independence, although most European countries and a majority of UN members have. Mr. Kurti, though, is reluctant to settle with Serbia, a deal that would make the Trump administration look savvy, and that puts him on the wrong side of Mr. Trump. But it's the current Kosovar president who remains Mr. Kurti's more significant foe. He is behaving every day as one of the leaders of the opposition. So every day he finds a pretext to attack me. The president, Hashim Thaci, 
who was a senior figure in the former Kosovo Liberation Army, which was the guerrilla group that uh, fought Serbia in in the late 90s, is the type of person that Mr. Kurti really wants to see gone. He accuses um, Mr. Tharchi of being the type of person or symbolizing that elite, which he says has become corrupt. President of Kosovo is more of an everyday politician rather than ceremonial figure as president should be in a republic which is democratic and parliamentarian in character. I uh, imagine that our president would like to change our constitution and uh, render our republic into a presidential one, like U.S. or France. Tim, President Tachi argues he's only focused on the coronavirus and that Mr. Curti's concerns about constitutional change aren't, aren't valid. But their rivalry clearly goes far beyond this. So over the last couple of years, Mr. Tharchi has been pursuing talks with his opposite number in Serbia, President Aleksandar Vucic, aiming somehow to come to some sort of deal which would settle all the outstanding issues between Kosovo and Serbia. And Mr. Kurti has been opposing this. And when he came to power, he said, clearly, I'm now the prime minister, talks with Serbia will now proceed under my aegis. I'm now in control. And, and that's the main reason the two have come to blows now? Well, initially, they've disagreed over the legacy of the last government, which imposed a tariff of 100% on all Serbian imports, which is really hurt Serbia economically because Serbia exports a lot to uh, Kosovo. And Mr. Vucic, the Serbian president, said... Fine, he would proceed perhaps to do a deal with Kosovo, but he wanted this tariff lifted. Mr. Kurti then said, fine, we'll lift the tariff, and he's begun moves to do that. But he just said, on the basis of reciprocity, which has angered the Serbs, clearly, but also the Americans, because reciprocity is a way of kind of almost not lifting them. But how is it that the Americans are so involved in what amounts to some fairly fine-grained trade negotiations? The reason for that is because the Americans, specifically Ambassador Richard Grenell, who's the U.S. ambassador to Germany, but also now is acting head of intelligence, who's been charged by the Trump administration to oversee talks between Serbia and Kosovo. Now, he's believed to want to have some form of foreign policy success, i.e. a deal between Serbia and Kosovo, which could be useful for Mr. Trump during his election campaign. The issue of the trade, it seems kind of minor, but this was what was halting a possible deal or progress to a possible deal between Kosovo and Serbia, between Hashim Thaci and Aleksandr Vucic. Then we had the election and uh, Mr. Kurti seemed to get in the way of this and appeared to be acting truculently as far as the Americans were concerned. They accused me for being anti-American because on this point, I did not agree with Ambassador Grenell. So I agreed with Ambassador Grenell that uh, we need uh, to have an agreement with Serbia, that new energy is needed. But then when it came to the content of the agreement, we had this uh, difference. I did not consider that this difference should be of such a great importance, but it turned out to be so. And so it seems that the Americans have encouraged uh, their friends in Kosovo, including Mr. Tharchi and others, uh, to get rid of this truculent prime minister. 
But traditionally, America has been on the side of Kosovo rather than on Serbia. I mean, what, what do you read in uh, it, it trying to put its thumb on the scales in favor of Serbia now? Well, it's extremely uh, strange because America was the most staunch supporter of Kosovo. Don't forget that in 1999, it was the Americans that led the NATO bombing, which lasted uh, for 78 days of Serbia and which led to an end of Serbian rule in Kosovo and which, of course, has led in the end to Kosovo's independence. And now it's quite strange because the statements that are coming from Washington appear to be very similar to the statements and uh, sentiments that we've seen coming from the TASS news agency from Moscow. So it's been quite confusing for some people because now it looks like the the Americans are are favouring Serbia um, and are on the same kind of line of argument as the Russians. And so what, what happens now? that This all comes amid, of course, a, a global pandemic, uh, one that, that will not leave Kosovo untouched. And Mr. Kurti seems to be out of power. But, but what happens now? Well, first of all, Mr. Kurti continues as caretaker prime minister. That means he's still in power, but he has and his government have much less power than they would do ordinarily. Now, in an ordinary situation, you could proceed to a snap election. But under these circumstances, clearly it's impossible to proceed to a snap election. So perhaps what will happen is that a new government will take over in the next few weeks, unless Mr. Kurti can think of a way to get out of this, and him and his party will no longer be in power. Mr. Curtis are not likely to go down uh, without a fight. Politics is a struggle, you know, and I'm a man of resilience. You know, that old formula of Clausewitz, war is politics by other means. I could say that uh, now the opposite is true. Politics is war by other means. And he assumes that even if he does go down, then he'll be back as soon as he can be, and he'll be in a much stronger position. Tim, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. To get a lot more analysis like this, subscribe to The Economist, a trusted source of information and, well, intelligence for 175 years. Just go to economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity. As the world struggles to get to grips with the pandemic, emerging markets are battling a financial crisis as well as a public health one. Foreign investors, desperate to avert risk, have been withdrawing their cash from poor countries at a record rate. Last week, the International Monetary Fund's managing director, Kristalina Georgieva, laid out the challenges on our sister podcast, The Economist Asks. Never in the history of the IMF we have had so many countries asking for financial support at the same time. And never it has been so critical that we are fast in responding to these requests. We are faced with with a crisis like no other. This week, she'll be part of the spring meetings of the IMF and the World Bank, trying to determine how to respond to that tidal wave of requests. First, though, the attendees will have to adjust to solving this global crisis virtually. 
Well, normally, as part of the the spring meetings, everyone, you know, the the international economics who's who flies into Washington D.C. and you know hobnobs at, at cocktail parties and, and meetings and so on. Samaya Keynes is the Economist's trade and globalization editor. And, and this year, it's a virtual affair, which uh, means much less socializing um, and some interesting logistical challenges. Because, of course, with everyone on different time zones, it's pretty difficult to coordinate meetings. Uh, so just just as an example, um, this year, the, the European um, press conference is going to be at a lovely 5 a.m. Washington, D.C. time. Um, so you've got some very happy uh, U.S.-based journalists there. So in a sense, a lot of what they'll be talking about is kind of already in the news. The IMF has already said that the pandemic is is likely to cause the, a worse contraction than even the Great Depression, that it's going to hit emerging markets and developing economies the, the hardest. What what have we already seen of, of those kinds of predictions? Yeah, I think based on what we've seen so far, things are getting pretty ugly. Now, obviously, things like GDP statistics come out with a lag. So the the extent of it is unclear. Um, But, you know, we can see commodity prices falling. We can see that countries relying on tourism revenues uh, are going to be struggling this year. Um, we can see uh, a scramble for dollars. People, people are, are, are you know trying to get whatever cash they can. Meanwhile, investors are running away from from assets they see as risky. So emerging markets have seen huge um, capital outflows as investors are just pulling their money out as fast as they can. Um, and you know, in general, just we're seeing huge amounts of, of financial strain. And obviously, the the IMF has been on on the front lines. Um, over ninety countries have approached it um, to ask for help. So the IMF is the sort of lender of last resort for governments, and their services are you know in high demand. And I think the you know the the sums involved are pretty staggering. The the IMF has estimated that emerging markets uh, are going to need at least two point five trillion dollars over the course of the pandemic, and that's at least it, it could be more, depending on just how bad this thing gets. Well, exactly. I mean that that is the source of uh, of so much of the uncertainty. How can organizations like the IMF? dole out the resources that they have effectively to to the most needy at, at the right time. It's tricky, right? Um, uh, you know, the IMF is a, is a rules-based institution. It has processes it has to follow. Um, that said, there is recognition that this time is is extraordinary. This shock is extraordinary. Um, so just to, just to give you an example, um, there's a, a program by which countries can, you know, request help. Uh, and normally there's a, there's a two-step program process for approving that. So the first step is answering the question of, is this money really needed for for the problem at at hand or the problem being claimed? Uh, And then the second step is, well, you know, will their debt be sustainable even after we give them the money? And if not, then um, the IMF says, well, you know what, we we can't just give you money to pay off your creditors. You You need to ask for some debt relief. Now, in this case, it's broadly understood that actually countries really do need the help. Right, that there isn't a case by case assessment of like, oh, you know, is is COVID nineteen really a, a problem for you? And so what's happening is it's really the debt sustainability analysis that's that's sort of the, the bottleneck in the process. And so the economists at, at the IMF are working, you know, around the clock to try and to try and make those calculations and and disperse the money as quickly as they can. And what about the depth of the IMF's pockets? I mean, these the these sums, as you say, are eye watering. Do do they have it? 
Eh, so the, the fund says that it has uh, about a trillion dollars on tap and, and it's, a, it's already committed about a fifth of that. Um, but, you know, within that pot, there are different kinds of money. Um, so a, a big chunk of that comes from money that is basically borrowed from members. Those members have committed to lend if, if the need for the funds should arise. And a big tranche of those borrowed funds still need to be approved by the membership this year. So, you know, in some areas, the Americans haven't been particularly forthcoming um, with funds. But actually, in this area, uh, America has stepped up and approved its share. Uh, there was the, the CARES Act that went through Congress as part of its the stimulus package. Um, and it, it, the, the Treasury got in the approval for, for that extra funding. But other members of the IMF still need to approve their share. And, and you say that the holdup is is working out the the debt sustainability, the conditions on on which a lot of these loans will will be actually given. I mean, is is there a way around that? Is there a shortcut for that? Yeah. So one idea that is swilling around the ether is this idea that would let you give central banks around the world unconditional cash, right? So there wouldn't be any any strings attached, and and this would happen through an allocation of something called special drawing rights. So this is a kind of IMF funny money. Um, that you can get and then you can go to, say, the U.S. Treasury and say, here, have some IMF funny money and I want cash in return. And so the proposal is to issue, say, you know, $500 billion worth of these, these SDRs, these special drawing rights, um, and that would just get countries money without any conditions. Unfortunately, it seems like the U.S. is blocking it. So why does America care about that part? There's a suspicion that actually uh, the reason was that they just didn't want money going to the likes of Iran, um, states that the U.S. wasn't such a fan of. Uh, This is a pretty indiscriminate form of of funding um, that has advantages, but it also creates political challenges. And so with all that in mind, then, what do you expect from uh, from these virtual meetings this week? I think I expect something to be announced, whether it's uh, increasing access to some of the existing lending schemes, perhaps uh, increasing the amount of support that a country could get relative to their contributions to the to the fund. Um, there's going to be two big, big meetings this week. There's one, uh, which is the G20, and then um, the, the IMF on April the 16th. Whether it's, you know, a huge bazooka firepower of trillions and trillions of dollars of extra resources, I'm I'm skeptical, um, but I suspect we'll see something. Samia, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. You can hear a lot more insights from IMF boss Kristalina Georgieva on the most recent episode of The Economist Asks, available wherever you get your podcasts. In a lot of countries, social media play a critical role in courtship. The glitzy pictures of a virtually bottomless pool of potential partners lowers the stakes of flirting, makes dating seem less of a commitment. Romantic liberalization, let's call it. But in Indonesia, conservative Muslim groups are using those same platforms to convince young lovers to ditch dating altogether. The country is home to the world's largest Muslim population. Islam there has been traditionally a moderate affair. Charlie McCann is our Southeast Asia correspondent. But you see these days lots of religious teens and millennials embracing abstinence. 
Why is that changing? Well, it's tied to a broader shift in the nature of Islam in Indonesia. Islamic law bans premarital sex, yet two-fifths of unmarried adolescents have had sex. This troubled a young university student called Laoda Munafar, who is a conservative Muslim. And about five years ago, he started an organization called Indonesia Tampa Pacharan, which means Indonesia without dating. The organization exists to promote the idea that young Muslims should renounce dating, get married, preferably get married quite early. And so his organization launched a social media campaign. It hosts lectures and workshops. It enrolls members in WhatsApp chat rooms where they can exchange Quranic verses and meet other like-minded people. And it's been wildly successful. It even spawned a new genre of YouTube video where teenage girls call up their boyfriends and dump them to applause from their friends and bystanders. I mean, it, it seems like a fairly progressive way to espouse some pretty conservative views. So Laud Munafar is very conservative, but what's new about what he's doing is his very savvy use of social media. Perhaps the best example centers on this couple, Natareza and Warda Molina. In 2017, Nata was a, a young, rather dashing busker who found Warda's Instagram account. He liked one of her posts, they got chatting, and within hours he proposed. They got married a few months after that and have since become Instagram celebrities. They make the case for early marriage way more effectively than any sermon could. And has there been any pushback against that shift? There has been. There is a, um, a long-established group of progressive feminist activists who have won some important legislative victories over the last 20 years. They've criminalized domestic violence. And last year, they raised the legal age of marriage for girls from 16 to 19. But for every progressive bill that gets passed, conservatives respond with their own. Parliament is currently debating a family resilience bill which would require women to take care of, of household affairs. So it seems then if young people on Instagram are racing to get married, ditching dating, that plenty are embracing that new conservatism. Yeah, it does. They're, they're embracing this new idea. One woman I spoke to thinks the idea of early marriage is incredibly noble. And yet in practice, it doesn't always work out as they might hope. For every Nada and Warda, there is a Salmafina, Karunisa, and Taki Malik. In 2017, Salmafina, who was then an 18-year-old Instagram personality, married this 22-year-old heartthrob, Taki Malik, despite the fact that they'd only met two weeks before. And they were really celebrated for this. Indonesia Tampa Pacharan couldn't get enough of them. But Salmafina soon learned that Taki wanted to get a second wife. Polygamy is legal in Indonesia and encouraged by radicals. And... Taki soon discovered that Salmafina wasn't the submissive wife he was hoping for. And within three months, they'd got divorced. So how do you see this playing out in the longer term? Should we just keep an eye on Indonesian Instagram to see where Indonesian Islam is going? Yeah, I mean, Instagram is where it's happening right now, certainly for conservative Muslim activists. They're all congregating on these social media platforms the progressive counterparts aren't using social media in, in the same sophisticated way. Many of them aren't even on Instagram and Facebook. 
and they're really struggling to communicate their ideas as a result and, and to win over popular support. Charlie, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And see you back here tomorrow. Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com.